Good morning, church. This morning we're uh, we're looking at Palm Sunday uh, as the the Christian church remembers Jesus entering Jerusalem and the preparation for the Passion Week, and we're looking at our own expectations of who this Jesus is. And I would invite you to examine your own expectations. We're examining the expectations of our faith and what we believe. We walk into a situation often expecting one reality. We have our expectations and we think this one thing will be true. This is what we have our mind set upon. But often reality will come and challenge your expectation and you're forced to make a decision. I remember for me personally, my, my expectations and my reality clashed and uh, were brutally confronted when I began seminary. When I was growing up, I was one of those kind of students that a lot of people despised because I was very much an auditory listener. And so when I was in class, I wasn't really taking notes. I was sitting there like doodling in my sketchbook and drawing little pictures and everything. But I'm listening as I'm drawing, and so I'm soaking everything in. And so I had developed the habit of not studying, yet still getting by. And in fact, in high school, I, I was actually on the, the honor roll, making A's and B's and all of that. When I got to college, I didn't do as well, but I was able to still get by without taking notes, or bare minimum of notes, and just paying attention, listening in class while I'm doodling in my book and getting passing grades. And unfortunately, college is where I learned the unfortunate phrase that C's get degrees. Students, don't, don't follow my example. I encourage you to study and absorb as much as you can. Don't be like me, at least in that regard. But the problem was I had developed this lifelong habit of not preparing and studying. And so when I entered seminary, I expected graduate-level courses, which this was a lot of my foolishness, but I expected these graduate-level courses to be just like what I had experienced in high school and college. That was my expectation walking in. And my first semester, I ended up on academic probation because I was doing so poorly by midterms. Because I walked in with the expectation that I could do the bare minimum, at least as far as note-taking and classwork, and still be able to get by. And the reality of that workload brutally confronted my expectations. And for the first time in my life, I had to learn how to study. And it rocked my world in some ways better than others. But that was my expectation. I walked in expecting one thing to be true, and the reality forced me to confront that expectation. And people today are no different from the crowd that had gathered at the Passover feast because everybody has their expectations on the way life should be, the way relationships should be, even the way church should be, and who this Jesus is. And so we read this passage, and I would offer up the challenge that every person has to decide, every person has to decide 
if you will believe and follow Jesus. At some level, every person has to make that decision if you will believe and follow Him. Because every person is walking into this relationship with Jesus on some level with certain expectations. But the reality of who Jesus Christ is and what He said and did will challenge those expectations and will force you to have to make a decision one way or another. And looking at this passage, we see that there are generally two types of people (coughs) and then a response. We see first in verses 12-16 through that there are people who have expectations of Jesus. We see in verses 17-22 through that there are people who don't know what to expect from Jesus. And then lastly, in verses 23-26, through we see what Jesus expects from you. Before we go any further, let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time together that we can come, we can worship You, we can, we can sing songs of praise and adoration. But God, in this time we pray that You would still our, our, our thoughts, that we would lay down our distractions at the foot of Your throne, that we would bring our questions, we would bring our restless spirit before You. And that God, in this time, that You would pour out Your Spirit in this place, that You would expose the expectations that we have in our own heart, and that the power of Christ would challenge, confront, and change our expectations according to Your Word and according to Your glory. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So as a quick introduction to the Gospel of John, this letter, or this uh, Gospel itself, was written toward the end of the first century, roughly about 40 years after the death of Christ. So up until this point, uh, this narrative had been exchanged uh, verbally. He had shared uh, his account with other people but about 40 years after the death of Christ, it's written down and compiled for the, for the edification of the church, capital C. And he's writing to an audience of both Jewish and Gentile members. So it's not just people of Israel, it's not just the outsiders, but he's writing this gospel for both audiences. And so because of that, he's including uh, a lot of Old Testament references that the the Jewish audience would recognize and that they would see that Jesus is the Messiah that has been promised and He has come in the flesh. That Jesus is the fulfillment of these messianic prophecies. But for the outsiders, for the Gentiles, He has to explain some of these Jewish customs and what they mean. He also presents Jesus as the Word that became flesh. Because he's using this gospel to to challenge and confront uh, Greek uh, thought and Stoicism and Gnosticism that that there is power within the thoughts themselves, that there is power within words. And then John writes this gospel to say the word itself, the power of the word put on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. 
that Jesus is the Messiah and the Word and God in the flesh. And so in chapters 1 through 11, he does a a pretty quick run-through of the first three years of Jesus' life and ministry and the opposition that builds against Jesus. But it reads kind of like a highlight reel. Things aren't really expounded upon that much in the first 11 chapters. It's almost like a greatest hits of Jesus. And then the rest of the, the gospel is the Passion Week. The rest of the, the, the book of John just really gets in and exposes and dissects what Jesus did during the final week before his death and resurrection. And that's where we're picking up this morning, that at the end of chapter 11, uh, John has described that the Passover is at hand. It's, it's only a few days away, and that Jesus is entering Jerusalem to prepare for his third and final Passover. And so we see the first type of person who encounters Jesus are the people who have expectations of Jesus. We see in verses 12 and 13, it says, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So this is the crowd that has come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. For those of you that are familiar with your Old Testament history, this goes back to when, uh, when Israel was in captivity in Egypt and Moses uh, helped the people to prepare their families by covering the, the, the doorposts of their homes in blood so that as the Spirit of God moved through Egypt that the people of God would be spared. And this was, that was the first Passover. And so the Passover feast celebration was a remembrance of what God did for His people while they were in captivity in Egypt. And they come waving branches of palm trees as this was actually the, the Jewish national symbol. I think in, in our culture, we, we readily embrace the concept of like, we're Americans, and so we put like bald eagles on everything. Like that, if, if you want a, a more defining logo of the United States of America, I don't think you can find anything more defining of, of the United States than the bald eagle. That is our, our national symbol. And so for the, the nation of Israel, their national symbol was the palm branch. And so as a king would be entering the city, not just Jesus, but as a king would enter the city, the people of Israel would wave palm branches as a sign of their allegiance to the king. And so as Jesus is entering Jerusalem for the Passover feast, the people are waving their palm branches expecting Jesus to be the next king. Their expectation is that he would come as a mighty king and they're greeting him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he. And this is actually a variation of Psalm 118 uh, uh, from verses 25 and 26 where the the psalmist writes, Save us, we pray, O Yahweh, as the the covenant name of the Lord of Israel. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is He who comes in the name of Yahweh. We bless You from the house of Yahweh. 
And so they're directly tying Jesus entering into Jerusalem as this covenant promise of God's chosen king to restore a rightful rule over his people. They're expecting some sort of salvation, but they're expecting an earthly, temporal salvation. We see in verses 14 through 16 that Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. This is actually a reference uh, originally coming out of Genesis chapter 49 that the scepter it's the scepter shall not depart from Judah that God made a promise that a a rightful king and ruler would come from the tribe of Judah to restore rightful ownership over God's people to lead God's people to reestablish a kingly rule and then what they're saying the the fear not daughter of Zion and the uh, uh, the sitting on a donkey's colt those are actually taken from uh, Isaiah chapter 40 and Zechariah chapter 9. And so, as Jesus is coming in, this is not just, hey guys, let's get together and wave some palm branches. The people that have come to meet with Him, they know their Old Testament, and they see Jesus coming in, and they say, this is the King we've been waiting for. He's going to overthrow this Roman oppression, and their expectation was that he was going to bring a political salvation. They had political expectations of who Jesus was. They were on the right track, but they were limited in their expectation because they thought that Jesus was just going to come in and fix what was broken politically, culturally. Their expectation was almost there but stopped short. But we still see this in our people today. We have a lot of people identifying with the Republican Party that use Jesus to fight for a right to life. And they they have expectations of who this Jesus is as long as it fits their agenda and it stops at a certain point. But then we have people that identify with the Democrat Party as using Jesus to fight for the outcast and to fight for social justice. Again, they're, they're using aspects of who Jesus is to fit their political agenda as long as it fits within that box. And then their expectation of Jesus stops right there. Both sides are picking and choosing aspects of who Jesus is to fit their agenda, but leaves Jesus trying to, trying to fit God into a box It's a severely limited understanding of who this God is. And the reality is that Jesus was not an American. Jesus did not die to make you a better Republican or to make you a better Democrat. He did not die to make sure that you vote for the right person. But He came to make you a citizen of an eternal kingdom. 
even beyond the realm of politics, people come bringing their expectations of who Jesus is because we come saying, this is this box that I understand and everything that I believe about God, I'm going to fit inside of this box. As long as God or Jesus supports and fits my agenda and plan, that's what I believe about God. You'll often hear people say, well, my God would never do that. And more often than not, that is a clear sign that that person is using God to fit their agenda instead of their agenda fitting an infinite God. We often look at Jesus as what fits our needs without looking at Him as a whole. And so my question to you is, what box are you trying to fit God into? What box are you trying to fit Jesus Christ into? And it might be a political agenda. It's okay to admit these things. To say, well, I identify with this party and this is why I believe that uh, that we should follow it. it. It's okay to admit those things. Maybe, maybe the box that you're trying to fit Jesus into is, is, is rewarding your faith. To say, well, if I just do enough good things, if I go to enough Bible studies, if I go to enough prayer meetings, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to serve on, on this committee or, or this whatever at church. Uh, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to help take care of the, the middle schoolers because Lord only knows they need it. But we, we see all these different things, and that's a joke because I love middle schoolers. I, I have 20 years of youth ministry experience. I love middle schoolers because they're crazy. But anyway, but we come to Jesus with these expectations saying, well, if I just do enough things to make him happy, then hopefully he'll reward me for the good things that I've done. Are there some people that come to Jesus saying, well, I don't believe all of the the God things about him, but he was a a great teacher, and he was a very moral example of who we should be as people. But the problem is, if you believe that, you're having to throw away about half of what Jesus said about who he was. A lot of people are are familiar with C.S. Lewis from his, his writings of the Chronicles of Narnia, but he has a book called Mere Christianity, which for me is one of those books that I have to go to and reread every few years because it's kind of like a primer of, of Christian thought and, and understanding and doctrine. And if you haven't read it, I highly encourage it. But one of the things that he discusses in, in Mere Christianity is referred to as the trilemma. And it's this description of, of Jesus as a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. And let me read this, this quote for you, uh, because if I try to paraphrase it, I'm going to butcher it. So this is from, from C.S. Lewis discussing Jesus' claims about who he is. Lewis writes, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. 
He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And so my question for you is, what do you believe? What expectations do you have about who this Jesus is? After the crowd surrounded Jesus with their expectations, we get a glimpse of the people who don't know what to expect from Jesus. Picking up in verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So this crowd is following Jesus because they want to see what he's going to do next. They saw and they testified. They talked about the, the amazing thing that they saw, but they had no idea what was going to come next. They didn't know what to expect. And it's almost like that feeling when you discover a new show that you just fall in love with. And you go and you tell everyone about it. Amy and I, have, have, we've fallen into this thing with, with Netflix where instead of watching The Office or Parks and Rec over and over again, which we normally do, sometimes we'll branch out and try a new show. And then we fall in love with it and we're like, you've got to see this show that we found. And everyone else watched it like five years ago. But for us, we say, we found this new thing and you've got to experience it. And we don't know what we're in for but we're telling everyone about this new amazing thing that we've found. And that's who these people are. They found something new and exciting and they have no idea what's coming up next, but they're telling everyone about it. You've got to see this guy. In verse 19, it says, So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are, doing, that you are gaining nothing. Look. The world has gone after him. They're following Jesus, not spiritually, but in a, in a literal, physical manner. They are following Jesus because they want to see what he's going to do next. They hated him and despised him because in, in their view, he was destroying Old Testament law. Repeatedly, they were trying to trick him or to trap him in some sort of debate where they could say, see, look, you're disagreeing with what the law and the prophets have said. And every time they try, it comes back and blows up in their faith. But they're literally following after Jesus because they're trying to catch him. They're against him. But yet they continue to pursue him. And then we see in verses 20 through 22, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So the word here for Greeks 
is not just limited to the Greeks themselves, but that was often how uh, John would describe Gentiles, the people outside of the nation of Israel, that these outsiders have come. Uh, These were actually God-fearing Gentiles. They've come to observe the feast of the Passover. They're here for worshiping the covenant God of Israel, but they are still outsiders. And so they've come and they've heard about who this Jesus is because they've heard these things, but they have no idea who He is. And so these are the people that are on the fringes. They're like, I've heard the name. I've heard some crazy stuff, but I have no idea what's going on. We want to see Him. And these people had no idea what to expect. And so maybe you this morning are like the crowd that has been following Jesus, watching His miracles. That you've seen some pretty cool stuff and you've even told other people about it. But just like the people and the crowd during the the Passion Week, that when difficult times come, you move on to the next and biggest and brightest thing. Maybe this morning you're like the Pharisees. Maybe you don't believe these claims about who this Jesus is. And there might even be some people here that hold an anger toward Him. I don't know where you stand. I don't know why you're here this morning. Maybe you want to even try to confirm that this whole Jesus thing isn't real and you're just looking for that piece of evidence that, see, I told you all along, this can't be true. And part of you wants to fight against who this Jesus is, but for some reason, you keep coming back to Him over and over again. Or maybe this morning you're like the Greeks that have come to meet Jesus because you've heard these things about Him, but you don't know Him. And you want to find out more. You want to find out who this Jesus is and what all these things that people have said. Is it really true? You're collecting information and trying to figure this whole thing out. The beautiful thing is that Jesus Himself actually taught that that's how people react to the Gospel. There's a parable called the parable of the sower. And Jesus often taught with parables because he knew that stories could break down these great truths about God and his kingdom in in a relatable way so people could understand. And so in Matthew 13, Mark 4, or Luke 8, you can go and read any of those and you'll find the parable of the sower where Jesus describes a farmer throwing out seeds for the harvest. And there are four different types. There are the seed that fall along the path. And Jesus said that those become trampled under feet, under your foot, and that they're devoured by the birds. There are the seed that fall along the rocks, and they grow for a short time, but because they're not actually able to take root, that they wither and fade away. <coughs> There's the seed that fall among the thorns that grow, but the thorns grow with them, and so the very life is choked out of the harvest. And lastly, there's the seed that falls on the good soil, that takes root, that when the gospel itself is is planted within the good soil, that it grows and the harvest 
is multiplied. In fact, Jesus says that it yields a hundredfold. I don't know where you are in your faith if you are, uh, if, if the word has gone out, if you're a, a, a soil that the gospel is shot up quickly, but there's not a whole lot of depth. That's okay. We can, we can, I'd love to, to talk about that and, and to, for you to bring your questions and your concerns or, or anything that you feel like is, is a challenge within Scripture. There's the, maybe you're the, the seed that falls among the thorns that the, the concerns and the cares of this world are choking out your faith. That's okay. We can, we can discuss that. We can, we can, we can figure out how to, to make that gospel take root. Or maybe you're like the good soil where the gospel has taken root and captivated your heart and changed your very life. I don't know where you are in your search, but in Psalm 54, or Psalm 34, excuse me, the psalmist writes, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. My challenge to you this morning is to come and see and ask questions, dig, pry, peel back, read through, and say, I don't understand this. Because I am confident that God is big enough to handle your questions and your concerns. Whatever expectations you may or may not have, bring them to Jesus and experience who He is for yourself. And then after seeing both the people who had their expectations and the people who didn't know what to expect, We see now what Jesus expects from you. In verse 23, it says that Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus knows that His time is coming. The hour has come. That very soon, He will be called to lay down His very life but that it leads to glory. It leads to the glorification not just of Him, but His people. And He knows that the time is coming where He has to confront what He has come to accomplish. In verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Again, he's using this agricultural analogy because he knows that this is what the people understand. He knows how to communicate these truths in a way that the everyday person can relate it to their own understanding. That in order for there to be new life, there has to be death. In order for the harvest to grow, the seed has to fall and die unto itself to create new life and new growth. And he says that in this life, whoever loves the things of this life, whoever holds on to it like this temporal life is precious, will lose his life eternally. 
But whoever hates his life, not a literal, I hate myself and want to die, but whoever hates this very temporal life and is willing to lay it down for the glory of God will gain eternal life. He's contrasting the worldly pleasures that fade away and die with the eternal kingdom of God. And you have to wonder, which do you chase after? Are you chasing after a temporary pleasure that will soon fade and die away? Are you chasing after eternal life? Compare the expectations of the people that think that to get the most out of this life, that you have to have the most stuff, that you have to have the most power, that you have to go to the right school, you have to, you have to make the best grades, and good grades are good, I'm valuing that, but in the eternal scheme of eternity, you are more than the sum of your grades. And there are those people that think that the things that you can gain in this life will give you your best life now. And Jesus says that if you are chasing after those things, they will fade and die and you will not gain eternal life. But the people who are willing to lay down these temporal gains for those that are willing to stop chasing after the power and the the stuff of this world will find eternal life. Picking up in verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. He's telling his people then, and he's telling you today that those who wish to serve him must follow him wherever he leads you. And I think there are a lot of people that are afraid uh, of, well, if I follow Jesus, he's going to, he's going to make me live a, a life like a monk or a nun that I'm going to have to forsake everything good in this world. He's going to call me to some like mission field where I'm going to have to uh, walk five miles each way just to get a, a bucket of water. And we, we bring these expectations to Jesus of if I follow him, he's going to make me live this miserable life. I don't know where Jesus is going to call you. He might call you onto the mission field in a foreign country. He might call you to the mission field of your neighborhood to share His love with your neighbor and your coworker, the kid that sits next to you in class. Or for those of you that are homeschooled, your brothers and sisters because they sit next to you. Maybe He'll call you into a, a pastoral ministry where you actually work full-time for a church, maybe He'll just call you to bring the Gospel to wherever your vocation is, that you can be the, the, the most glorious mechanic for the name of the Lord. Maybe you can bring the Gospel into teaching. Maybe you, you are going to be an accountant for the Lord. I don't know where Jesus is going to call you. But He says, follow Me. And where He is, the servant will be also. This is the promise of Jesus giving the Spirit to His people. That it's not, if you follow Me, you might get some help along the way. He says, wherever you follow Me, wherever I am, My Spirit is there as well. 
And whoever serves will be honored by the Father. These aren't if statements. They're not maybe statements. He says, if you do this, this will happen. If you, serve, or if you follow, you will have the Spirit. If you serve, you will be honored by the Father. He's saying that the things of this life cannot save you. The temporal things that we chase after are fleeting. But to turn from those things, turn from the things that cannot fulfill, that cannot save, that bring death, and to go and sin no more. Jesus says, follow me and the Spirit will be with you and the Father will honor you. Not because of what you have done, but, but <clears throat> because what Jesus himself has already done. As I mentioned earlier, that this is the week that we observe the passion of Christ, that we observe what Jesus did and was willing to do to come and lay down His very life. That this week we remember that He was betrayed and willingly took the burden of your sin and as He was beaten and nailed to a cross. That He truly died and was buried. And we'll reflect on that, uh, the weight of, of that death on Friday. But as we'll observe on Easter Sunday, that three days later that there was the glorious resurrection and the empty tomb. That not only was Jesus victorious over sin and death, but that His victory is given to His people. That He gives you His righteousness and His victory and His glory. And so as we wrap up this morning, I have to challenge you. What will you do with your expectations? What expectations do you have about who this Jesus is? Do you even have any expectations? Are you just trying to figure out what is going on and who this person is? Are you trying to fit God into a box to fit your own plan or your agenda? Are you just checking him out to see what happens next? I challenge you to bring your expectations. Bring your questions. Lay them at the foot of the cross today and make a decision for yourself if today will you believe and follow Jesus. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You not just for this time together this morning, but we thank You for the love that You have given Your people. The love that You gave in Your Son, Jesus Christ. And we confess far too often we come into church, we come to Jesus with expectations of what He will do for us, how He can fit our plans and our agendas. And God, we pray that You would take those expectations and that You would shatter them. That we would see that Jesus is far greater than anything we could ever expect or hope for. And that Your love is far greater than we could ever deserve. Let us rest in what Jesus has accomplished for His people, for Your church, for Your glory. And it's in His holy 
In precious name we pray. Amen.